0: Well, as Gary just reminded us, the purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. So let's open our Bibles to John's gospel. Our text for this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. Again, John 18, verses 1 through 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the blue Bibles from a chair in front or around you. If you're using a blue Bible, you'll find this text on page 904. 904. So it's been almost two months since we took our break from John's Gospel for our Advent season. So I think it's necessary for us to regain our bearings on the overall structure of John's gospel and where we are in the narrative at this time. John begins his gospel, if you remember, with a glorious prologue. He talks about the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, showing that the the man Jesus Christ was the very word of God made flesh. He also set the stage for what Jesus came to do. He came as a light in the light of the world who would destroy the darkness of sin and evil. And yet John shows us, even in the beginning, that the victory would be accomplished through Jesus' rejection, even his suffering. And then John began what is known as the Book of Signs. That's the, the portion of the gospel that extends from chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 12, verse 50. It includes John the Baptist's recognition of the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, It also includes Jesus calling his his first followers. And then in chapter 2, we begin to see how John records the miraculous signs of Jesus, beginning with the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, displaying his glory and power over creation. And then concludes the book of the signs with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which was a sign of Jesus' power not only over creation, but even over death itself. The beginning in John chapter 13, John moves to what is called the book of glory, where Jesus teaches on his glorification through his coming death and resurrection. He washes his disciples' feet and identifies his betrayer in chapter 13. Then in chapters 14 through 16, we explore together what is often called to or often referred to as the farewell discourse. That's the final block of teaching that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples before his betrayal and his arrest. And then just before Advent, we listened as Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, praying for himself, for his disciples, and even praying for you and me, those who have come to faith in Jesus through the testimony of those first apostles. We reached yet another inflection point in John's gospel. Judas, who left in chapter 13, returns and with him the official beginning of the darkest span of hours in human history. So let's read John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said? When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is courage? What is courage? Or more pointedly, what does courage look like? I suspect that many of us might think of courage in terms of battle. A soldier who sees the carnage of war before them and does not flee from the conflict but walks toward the danger resolved to fight for the cause they have bound themselves to. Or an adventurer who looks out upon a journey with uncertain outcomes and a lack of knowledge about what dangers await, yet takes the step into the unknown, knowing that peril and danger are on the path in front of them. I was thinking about this this week, and I was reminded of a moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, in the third book, Aragorn, the king, resolves to hold an army of undead kings and soldiers to an oath that they had made to his ancestors to fight alongside Isildur, Aragorn's ancestor. But when the time came for them to fight, they didn't keep their word. So Aragorn goes to the, their dwelling place to call them to honor the oath they had made to his ancestors by fighting now with him. And these kings dwelled in the inner recesses of a mountain. And as they approach the entrance, Tolkien draws us into the fear that the company is experiencing. The horses are sweating and pulling back. The, the men are trembling. But there's actually a humorous moment at the threshold of this mountain here. When we read of Gimli, the dwarf, who had for generations plumbed the depths of mountain mines with his kin, he is struck fearfully, frozen at the gate of this moment, and in a moment, or gate of this mountain, and in a moment of, of indignity, he watches his elvish friend Legolas enter the mountain, and it stuns Gimli. And Tolkien writes this: His knees shook, and he was wroth with himself. Here is a thing unheard of, he said. An elf will go underground and a dwarf dare not? With that, he plunged in. But it seemed like he dragged his feet like lead over the threshold. And at once a blindness came upon him, even upon Gimli, glowing sun, who had walked unafraid in many deep places of the world. Friends, courage isn't the absence of fear but it's rightly ordered fears. Here's what I mean. The soldier fears dishonor and failing his charge more than he fears the danger before him in the battle. The adventurer fears the complacency and comfort of life more than the danger of his explorations. Gimli feared abandoning his his dearest friends and the shame of being a dwarf who wouldn't enter an underground cavern more than the danger that was right in front of him. You see, courage courage is the willingness to face danger. It's confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing. In Scripture, courage is not the absence of fear or even the absence of real danger. Rather, it's rightly ordered fears. In our text, John shows us the dreadful outcome of Peter's disordered fear, even Judas's disordered fears. Alongside the marvelous courage of our glorious King Jesus. So these two parallel tracks are going to be how we spend the rest of our time. And they'll serve as our outline. First, we're going to explore the danger of disordered fears. And second, we're going to look at the unshakable courage of Jesus. So first, the danger of disordered fears. There's no sugarcoating the reality that this part of John's narrative is dark. It is heavy. It is painful. If you're reading the gospel, it hurts to read this part. It hurts because we've seen the tender yet strong nature of Jesus our Lord, his kind love and patience toward the disciples, his unwavering resolve in the face of adversity from the Jewish leaders and even at times from those who called themselves as disciples he was opposed. Here we just read of his betrayal by one whom he called a disciple and a friend. One who turned his back on the only being in the universe who had ever loved him unconditionally. Judas, twice called the betrayer in our text, is rightly identified that because he betrayed our Lord for money. John had already given us a glimpse into the darkness of Judas's heart. He ultimately betrayed Jesus for money, for a bit of financial security. For Judas, it was the fear of poverty that drove him to betray his teacher, his friend, to betray the Lord that he was pretending to serve and follow. Now, here's the thing. Don't rush to this text and think, I'm not like that. I'm no Judas. Friends, is history not filled with so-called Christians who traded the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ for a sizable earthly bank account? Is Jesus, here's a hard question, we're only a few minutes in, but listen, is Jesus still your teacher and Lord if he reduces you and your family to beggars? If you and your children become homeless and destitute financially, can you still say, I'd rather have Jesus? And beloved, don't medicate yourself here and say, that won't happen to me. Because that is the reality for many brothers and sisters across the globe, that allegiance to Jesus means poverty for them. It is loss of job and earning potential, loss of family. So truly ask yourself, is Jesus worth more to me than money? Can you see that your security is bound up in Jesus, not your earning potential? Yet there's more fear in this passage, much in the person of Peter, we, as, we, as we just read, we, we see Peter descend into all sorts of foolishness out of fear. John sets the stage by saying Jesus and his disciples have left their meal and their time together and have gone out to a familiar garden together. And Judas, we're told, knows this is where they're going to be. And he gathers a band of thugs and basically some mercenaries to come and arrest Jesus. Now, we're going to see what Jesus does, but but right now we're just going to focus on Peter's actions in this text. He's in the garden. He's watching what happens as Judas betrays his rabbi, and Jesus seems willing to go with the mob. And Peter makes a decision in the moment. He decides to fight. Look again at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was Malchus. Peter's a man of action, right? We, we know this by now. Peter is impulsive, he's emotional, he's strong-willed. Peter doesn't seem to us to be one who makes well-thought-out decisions often. Rather, he sees and he acts. And these actions are seared into the mind of John as he recounts small but meaningful details. Did you notice that? It was the servant's right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All these details pointing to John's credibility as an actual eyewitness, eyewitness of actual events. Yet another reason you can be confident that your Bible is true. Now on the surface we might look at Peter's actions and think that's courage. That's courage. But Jesus' response to him shows that it. It was actually wrong-headed and foolhardy and revealed, again, that Peter actually didn't grasp what was really going on. One scholar notes, Peter's bravery is not only useless, it is a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. Now, in fairness, we're not told the motivation behind Peter's actions here. And in truth... Peter's just as complex as you and I are. So there were likely many things rising in Peter that caused him to perform such a barbaric action. There's arrogance and suddenly thinking he can take on an entire armed mob, what most scholars agree amounted to a dagger-sized blade. There's the complete lack of awareness of Jesus who has just walked forward to turn himself in and secured a guarantee that his disciples could go. But I actually think misguided fear is a major culprit here. It isn't a stretch to say that Peter's actions are the actions of a frightened man. Perhaps it was fear that what they were going to do to Jesus. Perhaps it was fear of man, the type of fear that causes you to go too far against someone you perceive to be a threat Whatever the motivator here, Peter acts foolishly and does what might appear as Christian courage. But it's actually complete cowardice. Courage in this moment wasn't slicing an opponent's ear. It was trusting Jesus. And Peter's act is an open display of a lack of trust in Jesus. And this is what our disordered fears attack isn't it? When our fears are out of whack, don't they wage war against our trust? Think about it. Fear is our response to real or imagined danger. And beloved, the disciples and Jesus were in real danger at this moment. It's true. And there are times when you and I are in real danger And yet we are often forgetful that in following Jesus, if we are following him, we can trust him in the midst of our dangerous situations. We can trust him when we are afraid. Jesus did not want or need Peter to defend him. He wanted Peter to trust him. And Peter did what you and I so often do. He tried to take control of the situation. rather than trusting Jesus, who is actually the only one who's in control in this situation. You see, our fears, when left unchecked, erode our trust. All of a sudden, what we fear is far bigger than God can be, and we feel as if our well-being, our security, or even our very lives depend on us in this moment, what we can do. Do you remember the story of Elisha? From 2 Kings, when the king of Syria sent an army to seize him, and his helper is frightened. Listen to this from 2 Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are. With them, then Elisha prayed and said, "O oh Lord, please open his eyes that He may see." So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Our fear grows when our view of the Lord is small. It bears repeating. Fears grow where our view of the Lord is small. But there's a more devastating result of fear in this text, isn't there, friends? And it comes later, after Jesus has been arrested, Peter will deny his friend. He will deny his teacher. He will deny his very Savior. Not once, not twice. The three times. Now, this doesn't come as a shock to us if we've been in John's gospel together, because Jesus actually prophesied this very moment. We read in chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And in verses 17, verses 25 through 27, we read of Peter's crumbling. As he is directly asked about his allegiance to Jesus and he denies any connection to him. denies any connection to his lord the question comes first from a servant girl who admits him to the courtyard of the high priest then from a group who are surrounding him out of fire another small detail john puts it's a charcoal fire another credit to his eyewitness account and then finally from a relative of the very man that peter had violently assaulted just a short time prior each denial Becomes more and more ridiculous as the clear evidence and testimony of these interrogators reveals that Peter wasn't is a disciple. It's so sad to read it. John doesn't include just how this sounded, but Matthew actually tells us that Peter's denial is so passionate that he calls down curses on himself if it can be proven that he's a follower of Jesus. Peter, the one who said, if everyone else leaves, I won't. If everyone else fails, I won't. The one who declared, where else can we go but to you, O Lord, for you have the words of life. He uses his own words to deny Jesus and curse himself. What was Peter afraid of? Well, he feared man more than God in this moment. He feared the opinions of man, of humans, more than the opinion of heaven. In Peter, we see the chief disordered fear that we all must run from, the fear of man. The fear of man will cause the fear of the Lord to starve and wither in your heart. It will cause us to run away from God rather than to him. It will lead us to trust ourselves and our wisdom over that of the Lord it can even lead to denying the Lord Jesus. And just like Judas, we need to understand that we are, we're not immune to this type of sin. John gives us this account on one level to show us the plain reality of Jesus is, as the Lord, who knew all that he would endure, even from his friends, for us to wonder at Jesus, our suffering Savior. On the other hand, this painful rejection by Peter serves to warn us from becoming like him and to expose where we have been like him. Peter's not the only disciple to ever deny Jesus before men. Not even of this number. He is not the only Jesus follower to give in to fear of man. But we are given this account that we might not become like him that we might see where we are tempted to deny Jesus and flee from the sorrow this sin will bring and to find fresh courage in the glory of Jesus. So let me ask you, are your fears disordered this morning? What are you afraid of that isn't the Lord? Not all fear is sinful. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. But some is especially where that fear has replaced our love and devotion to Jesus. So maybe you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, does this text have anything to say to me? This text speaks to you too, because you're afraid too. But there's a difference. For you, apart from Christ, there is no escaping your fears. Sure, you assume there's hope in education or a job or family or wealth or adventure or in marriage or in intimacy or in fitness or in a diet or doctors or whatever you're trying to fight your fears with. But all of those are temporary solutions to an eternal reality. You see, Jesus comes to sinners like you and me and exposes that our fears, while they are real, are misdirected. They are disordered. Our sin has separated us from the God who made us, and when we die, we will be before him to give an account for our lives, and no amount of money or good works or health can deliver anyone from that day or that moment. But Jesus came and actually did live perfectly, yet he died to pay the penalty for sinners, for our sin And he rose from the dead, conquering evil and the evil one, so that by faith in him, we do not fear the judgment of God on that day. Because it would be Christ who did what we could never do in our place, who paid the debt that we couldn't pay, so that we do not fear the judgment of God. So if you aren't a Christian, you can know that freedom too. That's the hope of the Christian life. You can reorder your fears by faith in Jesus, And that freedom, that awareness that the wrath of God is satisfied and you are welcomed into his presence for eternity actually serves to deliver from the temporary fears of this life. You see, John shows us the danger of our disordered fears. But he simultaneously shows us Jesus' unshakable courage which is the next point, the unshakable courage of Jesus. So <clears throat> I don't know about you, if you, as you were listening to the text or following along, but what strikes me in this passage is how everything and everyone around Gia, Jesus is, is chaotic, is in chaos, but Jesus isn't. Like at no point in what we read is Jesus out of control. He isn't stoic or passive, but it's clear He's in control of everything that's going on. I mean, look at the opening verses of of the passage. Jesus and the 11 faithful disciples are in the garden, well known to them when Judas arrives with his gathered mob. And look again how how John describes them in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I mean, Judas has gathered a band of soldiers on the basis of a promise to deliver Jesus. Now, there is differing speculation about the amount of soldiers based on the word John uses here. Some say as far or as many as a thousand. Some argue for 200. but, But here's the thing. John's point is not the number of the troops or he would have included the number of the troops. John's point is not that. His point is who makes up the mob. It's Roman soldiers, Jewish temple guards, and the priests and the Pharisees. John is showing us that both Jew and Gentile alike show up to arrest Jesus. The theological reality John is showing is that the world, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of this gross injustice. But Jesus is not shaken by the betrayal, He's not shaken by the soldiers. In fact, John records an exchange between Jesus and his captors. John does not record the phony greeting and the betrayer's kiss of Judas, but rather John shows us how Jesus approaches the crowd and asks them who they seek. Then we read this startling moment. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Friends, Jesus is not caught off guard. Do you see that? John says, knowing all that would happen to him. Let that settle on you again. Jesus is not unsure at all about what this moment means. He's not confused. This is but the beginning of the deepest emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual agony in human history. Yet here our Savior, John tells us, came forward. He came forward to meet the soldiers to accomplish his father's will. The picture is this band demanding their captor, and they're expecting either a fight. That's why they're armed, or they're expecting a search for a running fugitive. That's why they have lanterns, it's night. But what they meet is the Son of God striding towards them out of the dark, with no earthly weapon declaring, "I am the one you seek." That's enough to shake up a cohort and cause them to fall back on their rears, to stumble and fall. Jesus, the light of the world, who shows that he could overcome them if he wanted to in this moment, demonstrates his power. He echoes the psalmist declaration. It came to to mind, or maybe the psalmist declaration comes to mind in this moment. Psalm 27.2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Jesus stares his enemies, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he confronts them and it is his enemies who draw back and fall. And yet, friends, we know that the courage of Jesus would not ultimately be displayed in his subjecting these enemies, but rather subjecting himself to his enemies. To do what he tells Peter there in verse 11 to drink the cup the Father has given me. He is drinking the cup that, even in this moment, when a friend betrays him, has, he's begun to taste the bitterness. He's laying down his life as he always purposed to do. Church, Jesus' courage is unshakable because his confidence is in his Father's will. Even if that means unimaginable suffering, such is the love our Savior has for us. And his courage doesn't stop there. We see it extend all the way till his last breath on the cross. Yet in our text, his courage shines against the backdrop of betrayal and denial. You see, after his arrest, John starts to jump between two scenes, scenes of Jesus and then scenes of Peter. And we've already seen Peter's fear controlled denial, but John intermingles Peter's fear with Jesus's courage. Jesus is arrested and bound and led to Annas, whom John says was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Kind of imagine the Don Corleone type effect here. He's the godfather. And he reminds us of Caiaphas' unknowing prophecy from chapter 11. John notes in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Do you remember that? It's in the wake of when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the, the Pharisees and the Jews are panicking. They're like, people are going to believe in him. This guy just brought a guy from the dead. And instead of faith in him, they're thinking, no, let's kill this guy who's raising people from the dead. He's He's obviously a charlatan. It could not be more wrong. And John records in chapter 11, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. How interesting that he's going to tell them that they know nothing at all, right? Can you see how John just records so much irony? It's beautiful. He said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas knew not what he spoke of, but he spoke truth. John points us to see that Jesus is accomplishing exactly what the Father planned. And the Father's plan was that Jesus would die for his people to purchase salvation and life for them. And Jesus marches courageously to his death through two kangaroo courts of injustice. The first we see among his own people with the Jews. He's questioned about his teaching He's questioned about his disciples, and Jesus does not bow to their questions. He doesn't explain or defend himself. Why not? Because would it really matter? I mean, the verdict had been decided. The verdict was settled before the trial began. These religious leaders weren't really looking for answers. They wanted evidence to support the sentence they were trying to pass. Jesus knows this, and his response is a right response. In essence, he demands, prove what you claim. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus offers an appropriate response and is met with inappropriate anger and sinful brutality. How shocking that a guard from the very temple designed to honor God would presume to lay a hand on the Son of God. I mean, again, the irony that John is showing us in his gospel is staggering. Who would dare touch God? And here is God in the flesh and a human presumes to slap him. I mean, think of the Old Testament story where Uzzah, or Uzzah, an escort of the Ark of the Covenant, dares to touch the Ark. Do you remember the story? He dares to touch the Ark as it looks like it's getting ready to fall off of a cart. And he is immediately struck dead for such a presumption. But here, the face of God is struck by a human and the human lives. Beloved, can you see that the Lord Jesus is ushering in a new? covenant and the way that he's dealing with humanity. I mean, our Savior surely fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant who is humiliated yet courageous. Jesus calls them on their sin and the whole ridiculous trial with one question, with his question, Jesus answered them, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, Jesus is in control here. The Jewish court is trying to exert its power, and Jesus reminds him, them that it is he who truly has the power, and he's the one who's actually righteous here. You see, church, nothing coming at Jesus in his passion shook his courage or his confidence in his Father's will, nor the plans that he had come to accomplish. When we see Peter and Judas set side by side with Jesus, we see a stunning picture of fear and faith. Jesus trusted his Father, the disciples faltered in fear. I mean, John is showing us step by step that Jesus is the only Savior not money or acceptance or strength to fight. No, Jesus is the Messiah, the only Savior, and that by trusting in him, we have eternal life. That's the point of John's gospel, and it's the point of our text here this morning. But I think there are a few more ways that we can apply this text. So let me offer a few ways to apply this as we conclude. One, What fears are eroding your confidence in the Lord Jesus? What dark corners of your heart absolutely terrify you? And if left unchecked, could lead you to run from Jesus rather than running to him. Brother or sister, it is to your peril that you ignore them or act like they don't exist. Rather, confess and name your fears to the Lord and seek the help of his Holy Spirit to fight fear and deepen your trust in Jesus. Disordered fears result in a disordered life. So learn to fear the Lord and trust him even when things in life are scary. He is your good father and nothing he has brought or will bring will shake his love and purpose for your life. Second, this text calls us to own our betrayal and denial. It would be easy for us to distance ourselves from Peter and Judas and the other disciples in our text, but that would be to short circuit, I think, one of the gifts that this text gives. So let me ask you this. Is there a betrayal in your life that you have received or you have given? I want to urge you, don't be like Judas. Seek out the one whom you have wounded or has wounded you and pursue forgiveness. Look to Jesus and see the one who was denied and forgave and restored his denier. Look to Judas and see the devastation, betrayal left unrepented of brought. Repentance, as hard as it is, is a gift from God to bring freedom. Restoration and renewed courage in God. Perhaps today, even this afternoon, there is a denial or betrayal you need to seek to make amends for. Thirdly, look to Jesus for courage, saint. You are not Jesus, He is the Savior. Yet Jesus was perfect in his humanity. He demonstrates actually for us what fearing the Lord and not fearing man looks like. So we can come to Jesus and learn from him how we might live with unshakable courage because of the Father's will. Countless saints have followed in the footsteps of their Savior. Some even marching to their death just like him, confident in the Father's plan. That's not just for super Christians. That's for every disciple of Jesus. So let's look to Jesus and find courage in and through him. And lastly, this. Saints, let's strengthen one another. As Christians, we have been given each other to help us in fighting fear and stirring faith. It's why we gather week after week to praise the Lord to remember the gospel, to pray together and with one another and for one another. The church is a means for you and for helping you rightly order your fears. Fellow Christians who do not shame you for your fear, but point you to Jesus for renewed courage. Because in Christ we have nothing to fear. For he has purchased eternal redemption for us. Through his blood. Let's pray.